Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. So Mark, you're packing for Des Moines. What are you going to be doing in Iowa? I'm going to be following Ron DeSantis and seeing how he recovers from arguably one of the worst days I've ever seen a presidential campaign suffer. Wow. Well, that's Mark Caputo, national political reporter for The Messenger, a veteran of NBC and Politico. He's been covering campaigns for decades. So when you hear him say that about DeSantis, it's a big deal. And I'm Brian Stelter. Welcome to Vanity Fair's Inside the Hive This week, we are going inside the Ron DeSantis campaign and the race for the GOP nomination. Because as you know, DeSantis was long seen as the best chance to beat Donald Trump in 2024. But something's gone wrong. Maybe many things have gone wrong, right, Mark? And maybe some things that were perceived to maybe go right were wrongly perceived. That is, maybe the Republican Party is not ready to quit Donald Trump. Bingo. Well, you mentioned his his worst day ever. That was Tuesday. I, I have to read from your lead for The Messenger. You wrote, DeSantis started Tuesday morning with a car crash, and by lunchtime, his campaign looked like a train wreck. Let's just be specific here. There was an actual car crash. Everybody was okay, right? That is true in Tennessee. And, and he was in kind of a motorcade of his own staff and campaign, and it, they kind of hit each other. So no one was injured, so we're not engaging in schadenfreude or making fun of tragedy. But it's a metaphor alert. Why was he in Tennessee? Raising money uh, and campaigning, right? He's on the campaign trail constantly. I mean, yeah, he's Florida's governor, but right now his main job is to try to get elected president. And it's not going so well. But I don't think about Tennessee as a very early primary state for the GOP. Right. Well, it's a place where people have money, so he needs money and that's where he is. And speaking of money, you know, and kind of justifying that lead, so he had to lay off a bunch of employees, about uh, two dozen of them. One of the employees uh, had secretly made a kind of uh, fascist hip, depending on your definition of hip, of course, video where he featured DeSantis's face uh, against a, a sonnenrod, a, a Nazi-appropriated runic symbol of a black sun, which they discovered. So he's among those who was dismissed, but most were dismissed for money reasons. And then on top of that, there was a new Iowa poll that showed him just badly trailing Donald Trump by 27 percentage mm. points. So of all of the news stories on Tuesday, all the stories about DeSantis this week, is the single biggest headline the having to lay off a third of the staff? I mean, that's the core of the crisis, isn't it? It is. Yeah. I mean, he did 24 on on Tuesday and they, they did about 14 prior to that. They had thought, hey, we've got such a such an awesome candidate. We're going to build this great campaign structure and the money is going to come flowing in. And it just kind of reminds you of that old joke about the two steps to becoming a millionaire. Step number one, get a million dollars. Well, the million dollars never came. And I mean, it did kind of, it did actually come. They, they actually had a pretty good fundraising, a great fundraising quarter. But the problem is they had overhead. They had high staff amount, like 90 employees. And they had a lot of air travel. DeSantis likes to fly private. Some of that, I think, is a creature comfort of his. Some of that is necessity. He's a governor of a state and an out-of-the-way capital of Tallahassee. If you want to go anywhere, you got to fly Delta and connect through Atlanta 
or you fly American, you connect through Charlotte. So you're spending a lot of time in connecting mm. flights. You know, Th- that actually course. is helpful context for the for the private plane thing because people hear it, they read it, they don't know what right. the context is. Let's then zoom out. So we we have these layoffs this week. We have this uh, this scandal involving the video. All these other bad news items about DeSantis, but widening out a bit. The reason he was bringing in so much money and then spending so much money was because he was the great white hope. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry. I'm chuckling at the white part. Uh, that was you intentional. Know, he's, he's Thank you for getting it. This controversy. <laughs> he's embroiled in this controversy over these African-American history standards. That's true. I mean, there's always just been a, an element of the Republican establishment, so to speak, and uh, the Acela media, you know, New York based and DC based media, which just kind of consistently underestimated the strength of Donald Trump and always casting around for kind of a new messiah to unseat him. And it, it just doesn't happen. It just hasn't happened yet. And I was among those last year, year before, who was skeptical that DeSantis was going to run against Trump because Ron DeSantis is a smart guy. Ron DeSantis is a movement conservative he is someone who understands his voters. He's a guy who understands data. And I think when you put all those things together and you look objectively at Donald Trump, you know, you realize like this guy's tough to beat. You know, even mm. after uh, January 6th, when he was at his low point, uh, Republicans still viewed him favorably. I mean, his favorability ratings did go down. And then shortly thereafter, in the 2022 cycle, you had hundreds of candidates from across the nation and up and down the ballot, almost on their knees, begging him either at his Bedminster Golf Course, New Jersey, or his Palm Beach estate at Mar-a-Lago for his endorsement. Th- that's a sign that this guy is the center of gravity of the party. Or another metaphor to use, that he, he has kind of virally replicated his, himself in the DNA of the GOP. And so far, no one has proven their ability to be a vaccine. I like the viral replication image there. Right, because we can't talk about DeSantis on this episode without talking about Trump. So to your point, right, there's this low point in the immediate aftermath of January 6th. People often forget there was this narrow window where it seemed like Trump might be drummed out of political life forever. And every step along the way, DeSantis has had to react to these stories about Trump, these developments about Trump. So when Mar-a-Lago is raided, for example, DeSantis had to address the story happening in his proverbial backyard in Florida. How did he handle that? I mean, that he handled okay. Uh, I think more of a problematic handling of a Donald Trump legal scandal or problem happened this March when Trump announced first, hey, I'm going to be indicted in the Stormy Daniels case. Mm -hmm. And Vivek Ramaswamy turned out to be quite the aid for Trump when he just came out, one of the primary opponents, and was like, I support Donald Trump completely. This is bullshit, right? And some other uh, Republican primary candidate sort of kind of grudgingly came along. DeSantis was silent for a few days. Then at a press conference, he spoke out and he was peeved, you could tell, at the way Trump had been going after him. And DeSantis gave kind of a full statement. He bashed the, quote, Soros prosecutor for that. So kind of covered his right flank. And then he said, look, 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 I don't know anything about porn star hush money payoffs, right? That's basically between him and his wife, like kind of threw shade at Trump. And then the Trump people reacted on social media, on Twitter, you know, by, you know, asking for their fainting couches and their smelling salts. (laughs) Oh, they couldn't believe it. They were in a swoon. How dare someone attack Donald Trump like that? And what did DeSantis do? He stopped kind of talking about it and kind of backed Mm -hmm. away. Now, remember the name of DeSantis's Super PAC, it's never back down. He's the never back down candidate. 
What did he do? He kind of backed mm. away. And having talked to one major bundler who uh, collects seven and eight figure checks, he had told me at the time, like, look, we wanted a guy who was going to kind of take on Trump and we're not mm. seeing that. And that was one of those examples. Another example was this uh, statement that DeSantis had given to Tucker Carlson about Ukraine. And actually, it was a rather nuanced statement if you bothered to read it, which, of course, many people didn't, and they just reacted to it. I mean, it really is kind of not, not objectionable. The objectionable language in it was where he called the invasion of Ukraine a territorial dispute, right? Certainly inartfully phrased. But he said, look, I don't support a blank check. I don't support troops on the ground, and I want a battle plan. I mean, who the hell would oppose that, right? But everyone kind of reacted as like, oh, my God, he's in Putin's pocket. I can't believe it, right? And then a few days later... DeSantis gave an interview with Piers Morgan. And in that interview with Piers Morgan, guess what he didn't do? He didn't say any of his talking points that he'd previously released to Tucker Carlson. <laughs> Mr. Never Back Down once again backed mm. away. So those were kind of two early things. And what's interesting about the first Donald Trump indictment, you could see this kind of uh, crudely and rawly in the real clear politics polling average. Almost at the point where right after Donald Trump makes that announcement, I'm going to be indicted. And in the lead up to that actual indictment in the hush money scandal, Trump's support levels go up, his ballot share goes up, and Ron DeSantis's decrease almost at the same proportion. That is, some of those people who are with DeSantis might have just fled and been like, look, this ain't the guy, like Trump's the guy. And there's been no change in that trajectory since. Oh, well, I should say, those support levels have sort of uh, plateaued, but Trump is plateauing, you know, at high 40s, 50s. In national Republican polling. Well, it's true. National Republican polling doesn't tell you what the primary is, but if you look at all the early state polling, he's well ahead of everybody. Now, DeSantis is still in second place. It still is technically a, a two-man race, but there's a possibility that that could change if the trajectory of DeSantis continues to kind of decrease and he, he continues to stumble and have these various problems we're going to see. We're talking in July and the first debates in August and people aren't going to vote until January. So, isn't the right. entire conversation premature? I mean, are we? No. I mean, this is what we do, right? We talk about politics. Well, maybe we shouldn't. Yeah. Well, you know, then I'm out of a job. And trust me, I know how to roof and I would prefer to do this rather than, than do <laughs> roofing. I live in Miami after all. Yeah. I mean, he gets reelected in November, you know, by 20 points. Uh, obviously, he was a presidential candidate. He was sort of a de facto one then. And then once the year started, DeSantis has a new book, makes a pile of money off of it. And then in, in, engages in this nationwide book tour, quote unquote, where it was pretty clear that this was sort of a shadow presidential right. campaign. So while they could cling to the fiction like, oh, I wasn't really a candidate. Well, yeah, technically that's true. But the media and lots of voters didn't see it that way. Yeah, it's true, though. Once you become official, you become official. But either way, things have just not broken the way DeSantis hoped. But why is it not premature to be discussing all this now? Why, why is it relevant today, given that voters won't get to actually weigh in for many months? Because it's happening. I mean, this is like candidates are on the campaign trail. They're talking. Polling is just a reality of this. Uh, you know, people who are uh, involved in politics as political professionals, county GOP chairs, consultants and voters, they're going to rallies. They're talking about it. So, yeah, the media is going to cover it. I think it's premature to say that Donald Trump is definitely going to be the nominee. I think it's premature to say that Ron DeSantis is definitely not going to be the nominee. Yes, I think that's premature. I don't think it's premature to say that Mike Pence and most of the other also-rans are going to be also-rans. That is not premature. <laughs> uh, I, I will happily 
you know, uh, perform some feat of contrition if somehow Mike Pence becomes uh, the nominee. Mm. Maybe Tim Scott, but I'm not seeing that either. Because it's true that polling is not predictive. But these are things of momentum. And winning begets winning, and losing usually begets losing. Uh, I've got lots more questions for you, Mark, especially about your home state of Florida. A quick break here on Inside the Hive, and much more in just a moment. The 2024 election means this year is going to be chock full of drama and nail-biting suspense. You deserve a politics and news podcast with expert analysis, no spin, no BS, just trusted journalists talking about what you need to know. I'm David Plotz, and each week on Slate's Political Gab Fest, I sit down with The New York Times' Emily Bazelon and CBS News' John Dickerson to do just that. Join us as we unpack the latest in politics, news, and the courts. Listen to the Political Gab Fest every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody, we're back on Inside the Hive. I'm Brian Selter speaking with Mark Caputo of The Messenger. Uh, Mark, you were born and raised in Florida. You've been covering Ron DeSantis for years. Uh, his strength in Florida has been undeniable. And I thought Florida was supposed to be the, the future of the United States. So why has not his support there translated everywhere else? Well, all elections are different. Uh, you know, a gubernatorial election is going to be different than a presidential election to begin with. And I think DeSantis's biggest advantage that he had in his 2022 reelect was, well, not only was he an incumbent, uh, it was also he was a, a leader, a, a top figure of the opposing party of the president. You know, midterm elections, Americans like to swing the other way. And Florida is kind of no different. And in addition to that, there was just a lot of goodwill built in toward him from lots of Floridians. Because a lot of people, not everybody, I got to be careful about saying this, liked the way he managed COVID. They liked the fact that he flung open the doors of the schoolhouses and said there's going to be in-person schooling again. That was a big thing for a lot of parents. And, uh, you know, for working people who have kids, having to have your kids indoors, and some people don't have computers, uh, they have their kids go online and try to learn on this little box, like that's very difficult. And kids suffered pretty badly. And DeSantis, uh, you know, it's partly a guess, I think, but it was partly analysis, had, had made his bet on how to manage COVID. And a lot of people were thankful for that. I am not discounting the number of deaths we had here. That's a whole other, like, hour-long conversation we could have. But that was a big thing. A lot of people moved here and liked that. Was it a significant number? I don't really know. But I know in talking to people, like, average people, they were happy and they actually credited having a job because of DeSantis. It's real. It doesn't translate to Iowa voters in 2024, does it? Well, that's probably part of the problem. Like you're asking, yeah, what 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 was part of his secret sauce of his 2022 reelect? Well, that's it. But now in 2024, what do you have? You again, you have to get back to this. He's running against Donald Trump. Right. He, and I just can't stress enough. It's like Donald Trump was not a politician. Donald Trump was a, cult, a cultural figure who entered politics. Donald Trump was someone who for 12 years, thanks to NBC Universal, uh, was broadcast into people's home as the most successful businessman you could find. And thanks in part to the New York media, especially the tabloid media, he was this exciting, brash, fun figure, larger than life figure. 
Uh, Republicans really like that. And Ron DeSantis is now finding out just how much they do. But there was a period where it seemed like DeSantis was the savvier, more creative Trump, a guy who could take Trump's words and put them into action. I mean, let's listen to his victory speech from 2022, where he used the word woke so many times. We reject woke ideology. We fight the woke in the legislature. We fight the woke in the schools. We fight the woke in the corporations. We will never, ever surrender to the woke mob. Florida is where woke goes to die. That was a clip for Fox and Breitbart, of course. Uh, it was uh, embraced by the right-wing media. Um, but is it possible that that narrative or that rhetoric actually is not what Republican voters want, what the average voter wants? If you talk to lots of Republicans, whether it be the pollsters or consultants, a, a lot of them rank and file, they don't like what's happening with transgender kids, especially. Uh, they don't like uh, what they've heard from the left concerning whites and white males. Again, the Republican Party being essentially a white male party. So yeah, the, the, that language from DeSantis is appealing to Republican voters, but the number one issue for them is the economy, right? And Again, like Trump is a cultural figure. He's someone who sort of is able to seamlessly kind of transcend these uh, these different aspects or these these different support levels in the GOP, especially that DeSantis quite can't. And what's DeSantis's argument? Well, I'm against the woke, but Donald Trump is a liberal, right? Mm. Like like that. And, and in fact, one of the, the the scandals that came out just on Sunday when the New York Times reported that. Uh, Another DeSantis staffer had secretly made this ad bashing Donald Trump as being too pro-gay, right? And it was an odd ad because it seemed both homophobic and homoerotic at the same time. Yes. And it just, it landed with a thud because in the end, Republican voters think they know who Donald Trump is. Mm. Now, is DeSantis the anti-woke ideologue who can get results? Certainly. And do Republican voters probably see him that way? Yes. Is it their top concern? No. Well, isn't that such an? Can I just underscore that that you know Trump talks about the economy, right? I would argue that he he, he lies a lot when he talks about it, but he talks a lot about the economy. Sure. Um, the idea that DeSantis presented himself by battling Disney, for example, uh, by by talking mm -hmm. about uh, what what kids are uh, accessing in schools, presented himself almost entirely as a culture warrior. Right. And you're saying that's not the number one priority of voters, actually. It's not the number one priority of Republican voters, independent voters, Democratic voters, you know, all three mixed together. Who knows? Anarchists? I'm not quite sure. Like the, the economic concerns are the number one thing. The reality is, is yes, the rate of inflation is going down. But people now, families now generally are paying more for meat than they were, you know, four years ago, three years ago. Uh, they, you know, costs have gone up. People still feel they're struggling. I understand there are other aspects of the economy that look very good. But Trump is able to communicate the idea that I'm a winner. Here's a good example. In one of his interviews, Donald Trump was starting to talk about beating China on steel. And Ron DeSantis was talking about attacking Bud Light over Dylan Mulvaney. Uh, you, you know, what's more elemental in people's minds? The guy who talks about steel and victory, like Otto von Bismarck? Or the guy who's like pissed off at the light beer manufacturer because it's like promoting a transgender person. I think that is so interesting. The headline on VanityFair.com was, DeSantis can't help himself. He launches inquiry into Bud Light for an ad with a trans actress. Um, it, there was a part of me that said, wow, this is, this is so niche. It's so super extremely online uh, for DeSantis. The other part of me thought, 
nope, maybe this is what Fox News fans care about. This is what they hear about all day. And so I kind of didn't know what direction to take that in. Well, I think both are probably true. The reality is he's getting attention over it. So it's not necessarily a bad thing. He's getting attention. But to your point, Trump is suggesting much more of a winning. He's he's hitting people on like a gut level talking about China and he steel. Does. Right. And, and and just more broadly, Donald Trump is funny. Is he funny all the time? No. But he's got a lot of charisma and a lot of charm. And he gives sort of the, the, the sense, a feeling of like a vision. Uh, and yes, yeah, like, is it a coherent vision all the time? No. I mean, sometimes listening to Donald Trump's speech, I'm like a dog watching television. Like there's something going on. I don't quite know what it is. But nevertheless, there's like th- this, there's this kind of sense about it. Uh, Ron DeSantis' uh, presentation has generally been almost all negative. Uh, he sounds put out. He sounds angry. Uh, and now what he's seeing is, is Tim Scott, the South Carolina senator, also a Republican primary candidate, is starting to rise in Iowa. Because what's Tim Scott doing? He's giving an all warm and fuzzy, positive message. Now, I'm not saying that 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 DeSantis needs to do this, but DeSantis is basically in that kind of one gear, anti-woke culture warrior. And while that's where a good portion of the Republican base is, that's not like the complete uh, atmosphere, the complete ambit of their concerns. And now you're seeing sort of uh, Tim Scott's support levels rise up because it's possible that as these kind of not Trump Republican voters are seeing DeSantis decline. They're starting to think, well, I was voting for Ron DeSantis because he was the guy I thought was going to beat Donald Trump. Mm. If he's not going to beat Donald Trump, I may as well vote for someone I like. (laughs) And Tim Scott is really trying hard to be likable, and he does a good job of it. Right now, DeSantis is almost all negative, and he's not not hitting that gear. Yeah, if you've been to a Trump rally, uh, you know that with the rage is also joy. I noticed that, you know, five yeah, years weird. ago, I, David French recently yeah. wrote about it for the New York Times. You, you got to notice the joy, the excitement, the happiness, right. the the inspiration, even if it doesn't make sense to you as an observer, you have to recognize that it's there. And you're saying DeSantis lacks that. That's so interesting. But what about in Florida? Did he ever have that in Florida? I mean, were there, was there a, like, do you feel like you were watching a different guy as governor a few years ago? There are two Ron DeSantis's. Like there was a much more pragmatic Ron DeSantis who ran for governor, got elected and governed until COVID came along. And once COVID came along, things changed. I mean, things changed for American society and for us across the board in a lot of things. But I think among the things that changed was Ron DeSantis as governor. It made him into a different figure and it led him more into this kind of culture warrior role where he thrived. The thing I did, I don't understand about, or I haven't understood fully about the DeSantis campaign or about DeSantis is he is a smart guy. Uh, he is able to argue a point lucidly, and he's able to compress a lot of data very quickly and push his point forward and thrust and parry. But he is almost a victim of his own success because as, as his power consolidated in the run-up to his re-election after the re-election, he only kind of surrounded himself with people who were going to tell him what he wanted to hear. People weren't going to challenge him. And increasingly, because of his utter hatred of the media, which kind of preceded all of this anyway, and certainly the COVID coverage justified a lot of it, he never really submitted himself to sort of that give and take and thrust and parry with the news media. Oh, and that's something that makes you stronger, I believe. It is. Like you read the book of Proverbs, you know, knife sharpens on stone and man sharpens on man. And he really hasn't had that sort of... uh of that sort of sharpening. And I'm not saying that his campaign is a bunch of yes people, but Dave Carney, a seasoned 
Republican consultant, you know, from the, the George Bush years, he had told me a long time ago or you know, many months ago is that let's pretend it's like day three. The candidate hasn't slept in in 36 hours. He's done five stops in New Hampshire or better said in, in Iowa or wherever. He's screwing up his lines on the campaign trail. He's not really meeting voters where they are. There's a bunch of donors who need their calls returned and he needs to sleep. Who's going to be the guy who tells you, tells Ron DeSantis, look, you're fucking up. Uh, you need to make these calls and you need to go the fuck to sleep. And he doesn't really have that. And he hasn't really uh, surrounded himself with that structure. So though I understand he's been advised months ago to talk about the economy, he didn't really pay attention to that because he didn't really want to do it. Hmm. Right. Well, he had an opportunity to have, I think news gaggles are good for candidates. Yeah. Uh, and, I, and I think the same thing goes for Joe Biden as well. Just to be very clear, he should probably do the, more of those rather than these terrible speeches no one pays attention to. But DeSantis, uh, you know, hasn't really done those those sorts of things. So he's not presented in a media light where he is engaging in the sort of give and take that especially these early state voters like. Now, is that the reason he's in, solely the reason he's in where he is? No, but I think it's symptomatic of his situation. More questions for you, Mark. Quick break here on the podcast. More of Mark Caputo in just a moment. Hey, if you've been enjoying this episode, I hope you'll take a moment and leave a rating and review on the podcast app of your choice. And while you're there, don't forget to hit that follow button so you never miss an episode of Inside the Hive. And if you are watching this video, either I'm dead or I'm in a very, very, very bad situation. She said, oh my God, I can hear gunshots. I can hear men outside. Where are they? What have they done to them? Are they dead? Are they not dead? There is one suspect, her father, the Sheikh. It's Madeline Barron from In the Dark. We've teamed up with our new colleague, Heidi Blake, at The New Yorker to try to answer a question about one of the richest men in the world, the ruler of Dubai. Why do the women in Sheikh Mohammed's family keep trying to run away? There's five policemen outside and two policewomen inside the house. So basically, I'm a hostage. And he reminded me that Sheikh Mohammed can get me anywhere. Because you're a rich and powerful person, you can effectively break any law you want in our country and get away with it. The Runaway Princesses is available now. Follow In the Dark wherever you get your podcasts. And we are back here on Inside the Hive. I'm Brian Stelter talking with Mark Caputo of The Messenger. By the way, Mark, The Messenger, a startup news operation. Uh, What is it and what do you do there? Yeah, we're coast to coast nationwide publication that covers news, general interest, uh, politics and entertainment. We uh, just went live May 15th. And you're heading to Iowa now to cover DeSantis on the campaign trail. There's been a lot of uh, press and criticism of what he's like with voters. What is he actually like with voters? Well, I guess it depends on which Ron DeSantis wants to show up. I find the guy very smart, very engaging. Uh, The question is whether he chooses to be engaging with people. And not everyone walks away with the same impression on that. So I'm, I'm reading all these stories about a, a rocky reboot of the DeSantis campaign, right? A reset for the campaign. What you're going to see out of him now, allegedly, you're going to see him do far more uh, media interviews, allegedly more mainstream media interviews, more gaggling with reporters, more give and take, where you can see more of a raw, unvarnished side of Ron DeSantis. And if that happens, I, you know, it's going to be interesting. 
Will there be more criticism of Trump? I mean, yeah, the indictments are piling up. He, you know, isn't it baffling that that these other candidates are not trying to destroy Trump? Voters, and especially Republican voters, they want alphas. How are you going to knock the champ on his back by giving like veiled tweets, you know what I mean, and things like that? They're not really doing it. Now, allegedly, there will be a place and a time for these candidates to start doing it. But right right now, only Chris Christie is doing it. The problem that these, these candidates have, they say, is they need some Trump voters and they don't want to piss them off. So hitting the, the right notes and the right striking the right pose and balance is really tricky and no one so far has figured it out. And the most visible demonstration of this uh, will be August 23rd, the GOP debate on Fox. Um, you know, there's this ongoing guessing game about whether Trump will show up. We know DeSantis will, he needs to, but what do you think Trump might do instead if he doesn't show up? I got, got to give props to, to Vanity Fair and to Gabe Sherman for this one is he got it right. Uh, Trump and Tucker Carlson are talking about having a counter-programming uh, session that they will they will have an interview with Trump that would kind of air simultaneously on Twitter and on Trump's platform, Truth Social, at the, at the same time. The only reason you can't do live stream for Trump is that Trump has Truth Social and Truth Social doesn't have a live stream capability. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, uh, interesting. Yes. And it's one of the at least that's what I was told what, two or three days ago. Maybe they'll fix that by then. <laughs> and Trump wants to have his stuff on his Truth Social platform. So that's been kind of one of the weaknesses. But yeah, best best guess, Trump doesn't show up. Pretty good guess. He does some counter programming with Tucker Carlson. Mm. It's so revealing how all of our conversations about DeSantis always have to involve Trump, right? That That is the bottom line. That is the reality. Well, he's the champ. I mean, you know, you know, he's, he's at 40% in Iowa and DeSantis is down like below 20. Hmm. DeSantis has the most interesting uh, theory of the case against Trump. But so far, the problem is it's a theory against Trump and it's not working. It sounds like you believe he can come back from the dead, however. He can Rise again. Yeah, I don't think he's quite dead. I don't think he's quite dead, but yeah, he might have a foot in the grave. Wow. Uh, you know, so so there's, yeah, I mean, I just, yeah, I've just seen enough things. My Twitter avatar is Doubting Thomas. Like, you know, I want to put my finger in the wound. Uh, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily believe it until I touch it. And too often I found one of the enemies of, of reporting, especially speculative reporting, is certainty about how the future is going to work out. And, and very often, that's not how life is. <laughs> Mark Caputo, great talking with you. Thank you so much. Thanks. I appreciate it. <laughs> and once again, that was Mark Caputo, national political reporter for The Messenger. This episode of Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair was produced by Michael May. Stephen Valentino is our executive producer. Our engineer is Jake Loomis. Mixing was by Mike Kutchman. And I'm Brian Stelter. Thank you so much for tuning in. You can find me on Twitter at Brian Stelter or email me, bstelter at gmail.com. Share your feedback and your ideas for future episodes. We'll be back next Thursday for more Inside the Hive. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? 
there's a new uh, translation of the Iliad that's coming out. Emily Wilson. Oh. Really excited to see whether I can read the Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I'm, I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and, and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> <laughs> we hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. <laughs> Thank you.